This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold-resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 89 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Leslie Tesler, the founder and CEO of Hanny. Hanny is a beauty tools line that believes shaving is the first step to great skin. With their weighted razor and hydrating glycerin-packed shave pillow, Hanny's technology brings the power and freedom to shave anywhere, anytime, no water needed kind of hard to believe, but it's true. In this episode, Leslie shares with us her story from growing up in New Jersey and the UK to landing a job at Ralph Lauren by showing up to her friend's interview to working at L'Oreal and moving to Argentina, where she met her husband and had three kids in just four years and through consulting for startups was inspired to start Hanny while on a business trip in Japan. She talks with us about why it's important to put yourself in situations that scare you her experience raising her very first seed round, and how she manages moments of self-doubt and trolls on social media. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we launch a new episode every Tuesday morning. So don't forget to click subscribe, tune in, tell your friends, and hey, why not leave us a review? We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Leslie, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited in hearing your story and building Hanny. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Let's start, I guess, from where you're from. Tell me about your childhood. Were you entrepreneurial as a kid? I think I was. I was always figuring out ways. Maybe that's entrepreneurial, but I was always figuring out ways to make the things that I wanted happen. My, my, my father still laughs at this, but I remember being like six or seven years old and really wanting a trip to Disney and calling um, at that time a travel agent and like basically asking for all of the things specifically. I knew when I wanted my flights, I knew when I wanted my hotel and then strategically passing the phone off to my father when it was time to collect payment. And at that point he was like so flabbergasted and a little bit impressed, probably more annoyed that he um, 
he went, we went through with it and I ended up getting my trip to Disney, you know, just sort of never accepting. I mean, that was probably a really obnoxious thing to do. Now that I think about it, if my eight-year-old did that today, I would definitely not have been as generous. I hope she listens to this and he or know, she is I like, know. I'm going to call Disney right now. <laughs> I don't want to give anyone any ideas, but I just always remember not taking no for an answer and always finding a way to make it happen. And so I think that's probably a little entrepreneurial spirit way back when. Where did you grow up? So I kind of grew up all over. Um, I was born in New Jersey and I lived there, you know, for most of my younger life. And then when I was in high school, we moved to London for my father's job. And yeah, it was just like a major, you know, going from, I essentially went from a public school in New Jersey to one of the craziest private schools in the UK where it was just like a total, oh my gosh, I can't believe this world exists. And probably a combination of thank God I didn't grow up in this because I would be an absolute monster, (laughs) monster right now. A little spoiled, I guess. A little spoiled. And, um, but having the context of realizing that this isn't sort of real life really allowed me to have a good time and enjoy myself and like soak it all in. So yeah. So then my, my family stayed in Europe for the next 30 years. They actually just retired and came back. They were in Luxembourg for the last 15 and I came over to Atlanta. So it's not, you know, my first time here in the city, I went to college here and then straight out of college, I went to New York city. What were some of the first jobs that you had? I worked at the bagel baker in New Providence, New Jersey, when I was 13 years old, because I all, that was my first, first job because um, I was always an early riser, like a freakishly early. I never went through the teenage phase of like sleeping. I still, I mean, to this day, I could not sleep to noon if you, or 10 o'clock, to be honest. I always woke up really early. So You're I like, actually 8 a.m. Like I can't right, sleep past it, 8. Exactly. <laughs> Let's be real. Um, and so I like found this job making bagels that was amazing because I worked from like 4.30 in the morning till 10.30 in the morning or 11 on the weekends. And then I had the whole day free. It was a lot of fun. I got to eat all the bagels I wanted, which was really cool. And it was the first time I made my own money. And that was definitely addictive to me. Just not the money. I, you know, obviously didn't make much, but just the ability to to operate somewhat independently and make my own choices and have a little bit of control over some aspects of my life. That was the part that it was like, there's no going back. There's no going back after this. Absolutely. I was happy to pay for my own cell phone bill as a high schooler. Like at least I had one, you know, it was either that or none. (laughs) Exactly. You have it, you use it, you make smart decisions. I mean, I, I, I always, independence was always something that I really treasured. And, you know, once you get a taste of it, you can't really, you can't really go back. So what did you want to be when you grew up? I think at a very young age, I always envisioned some sort, I had, it's so funny. I was just talking to my husband about this because I I just met all of these really, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but I was in, in Houston and I met all these really smart, amazing people who built and sold companies really young, like out of college. And how did you meet them? Actually, I went to Houston to, to um, meet my lead investors for the first time. And they sort of introduced me to people and they have really smart people in their fund. And it's an atypical fund. Uh, it's actually more of like an SPV. I remember saying to my husband, you know, when I graduated and I majored in business, my whole world had been so like traditional corporate that I didn't, that wasn't even on my radar. Like I didn't get that that was a thing I could do. Right. I just always assumed that my path would be graduate, get a job at some, you know, badass company and rise to the top 
like as a kid, you didn't really have like ambitions to be a doctor, nurse, teacher, whatever it was specific as a kid. Nothing kind of was planted in your mind. I imagine myself in a boardroom, like making stuff happen. I didn't even know what a boardroom was until a few years ago. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I didn't know what that was growing up. That was not something I knew about as, as a kid. I think, yeah, I think I always kind of, well, I guess I followed kind of like my father's traditional finance banking path and always kind of. You knew very much a lot of this kind of business stuff you're saying from your dad. Yes. So you kind of understood what a boardroom yes, could be. But I absolutely had no clue that there was another path you could take that was this entrepreneurial sort of way um, that never crossed my mind. I didn't know that I had the option to do that or I could do that. I didn't have those kind of examples in front of me. I didn't know anyone who had started businesses. And so um, I'm just always, you know, I'm glad to be doing it now. And I'm always really impressed when I meet these people who are like, yeah, I made my my first company while, you know, in the nineties while I was in college and sold them. And there weren't, you know, a ton of people doing that back then. And so, yeah, I followed the path, exactly the path that I thought I wanted after college. And I moved to New York what did you study and what, what did you kind of go into first? What was your first job after college? Yeah. So I studied business with a, a concentration in marketing. It was peak friends mania. And I wanted to work at Ralph Lauren, just like Rachel Green. Who's Rachel Green? Mm. I'm asking for everybody also listening. <laughs> Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston's character on, um, on Friends. There we go. So you wanted to be just like Rachel. I wanted to be just like Rachel. You wanted to live with your friends. Yeah, I didn't know someone. I always kind of was more of a loner in like the, <laughs> in the living side, but I definitely wanted, you know, this, what I thought would be like a very glamorous, amazing job in New York City in fashion or beauty. That was the dream, you know? So I got to New York and I started um, applying for all of these amazing jobs at different fashion houses, you know? Um, different beauty companies. And what I found was that, you know, not going to school in in New York, um, I always had these sort of typical internships at uh, accounting firms, consultants firms, you know, very kind of traditional corporate stuff. And I couldn't get an interview anywhere because there were lots of, you know, NYU students who had interned with Zach Posen and Mark Jacobs. And I was like, oh my God, I'm already behind on my resume. And I literally just graduated college, you know, 30 seconds ago. And so I started, this is, I started working at a Nine West showroom where buyers would come in and I would get coffee and take coats. And it was myself and another girl. It actually was, it was called Bandolino now that I think of it, but it was like a night, it's probably no, no longer in existence, but I was working with another like young lady. Um, and she had an interview at Ralph Lauren and I was like insanely jealous of it. Um, but she had met a boy who was in Paris and she decided to follow her heart and go to Paris. And I begged her not to cancel her interview and uh, essentially what went in as her, right? What? So I, yeah, I went into my first interview. It was my first interview that I like actually got because I couldn't get one on like my own merit and credentials apparently. And I thought like, what do I have to lose? I mean, the worst case scenario is they kick me back onto the street and I am where I am right now. Or like maybe they'll admire my chutzpah and, um, and I can make something happen. So you were like, I'm going to pretend I'm you, or did you go yeah. in saying, Hey, I know you were expecting so-and-so to show up, but I'm actually here applying. When I finally like got in and I was interviewed by a woman named Donna Bernard, who then became my mentor for many, many years. 
I told her then like, look, she, she had my, my resume and she said, Oh, I think there's some confusion because your name says, you know, and I wish I could remember. I, I cannot remember what her name was. And that, and then I told her, listen, I know this probably isn't kosher, but I've been dying to get an interview here since, you know, for the last six months. And this is what I did. And she let me stay and she gave me a job. And that was how I got my first job in uh, the world that I, you know, was so convinced I wanted to be a part of. That's hilarious. I love that story. (laughs) Hilarious slash a little bit fraudulent, but you know, all with good intention. And I think it's something that's always been with me. And I think it's probably served me well. It's just, um, of course, you know, within, within the the code of ethics and never pushing it too far, but it's like a lot of times you got to take a non-traditional path and do what you have to do to get where you want to be. And that's what I did. That's hilarious. I feel like I have so many stories like that. And my, my head is like turning, like, which one should I share? But I can't even <laughs> think of one that, yeah, it's, that's awesome. I love that. So you got into Ralph Lauren. You got like, to Ralph got Lauren. To, yeah. And I dream job, you know, but very quickly realized, I mean, you can ask anyone who worked, worked slash works in fashion and beauty that at the end of the day, although it's has glamorous trappings, you know, it's just a job. It's not like you're walking down the hall, like, dripping in Ralph Lauren cashmere and, 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 you know, with the birds chirping and, you know, this, yeah, you're like no, getting coffee, slopping around getting New York coffee City and, and like a closet. Oh, ba- I was in like a, a, ba- a back closet that had like transformed into an office. And, and yeah, I was uh, working as an assistant in HR, calling people, making appointments for interviews and like interviewing sort of very entry level people. And I, I mean, I would have taken a job sweeping floors at Ralph Lauren. I would have taken anything they had given me. So HR wasn't really like what I, what I wanted per se, but it's what I got. And I, and I, and I took it and, um, I met a lot of incredible people. I actually, you know, kind of started off this like chain effect of companies like that have really strong corporate cultures. And I think either you drink the Kool-Aid and you love it and you fit in, or you very quickly realize that you don't. And I fit into the latter. Um, but (laughs) my kind of like savior boss who she introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Thierry Andretta, who um, he, there's an Italian denim company called Replay. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yes. Yep. It's kind of similar to Diesel. They're from the same region in Italy. Anyways, this is a guy who, you know, has gone on to be like the CEO of Mulberry of Lanvin. Oh, wow. Cool. You know, a great, amazing guy who could not be more down to earth. She introduced me to him and he said, look, I'm going to, we're, we're opening up replays in the U S and I need someone to help me. And I said, you know, hell yeah, I'm in. And, um, that started sort of like the next phase of my career, probably the most entrepreneur, definitely the most entrepreneurial, um, where basically it was he and I in an apartment in times square, uh, opening up for, for a good while. It was just the two of us in the U S and I was doing everything there from receiving furniture in his new apartment while he was in Paris to um, literally flying out to the first store we opened, which was in Orange County, and hiring all of the staff for the store, something of which I knew absolutely nothing about reading, like how to interview for dummies on the flight and meeting all of these people. Like I didn't know retail lingo. This was all, you know, and I think, you know, I was definitely more nervous than they were to, to, to do the interviews. And I ended up figuring it out. We ended up opening together five stores in the U S Beverly Hills, uh, Miami all over. And, um, 
again, it was that kind of situation where I realized you can just throw me in, into something and I know nothing, but I'll figure it out. I'll find who I need to talk to and some way to make it happen. And that was, I think, the coolest experience I had, working experience sort of professionally um, prior to Hanny, for sure. I would spend, they would, I would be, I would go to Italy like for probably four times a year and get to really be in the presence of this, inc- I mean, there I had a front row seat, right? buying the collection, opening the stores. And I thought, wow, okay, this is, this is, this is something awesome. I can get into. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it was so cool. That's awesome. It was wonderful. Yeah. And yeah. then I got my first job at L'Oreal fast forward also through an introduction through my current boss, Terry. So it's like all of these amazing people that I was so lucky to introduce, uh, be introduced to and who have helped me so much in my career. I mean, I still get emails from him every year. He is like an exemplary how to be a good boss and how to be a caring person because here he is, you know, someone I admire a lot. I still get emails every year on my birthday. I still, you know, he still makes the effort and I'm just like, that's, that's, he's a great example to follow. Wonderful person. And then I started working at L'Oreal, which was my entree into beauty. Yeah. And how did that happen and why? Cause now you were kind of like a free bird making, uh, making your reality kind of happen or, you know, you're just really going at it at replay, but then, you know, L'Oreal is a very big company, obviously pretty similar to the Ralph Lauren experience. Why are you thinking I'm going to go back to corporate? I think it, I was in a position where I was very young and I was doing a lot of everything. And my neurotic side was nervous that I was never going to get expertise in one particular area. And so, you know, I think when you're in those positions, it's amazing experience and you are really like right-handing and doing a little bit of everything. But something in my gut said, you have to start to focus in on something if you want to kind of like advance and progress, because there wasn't a clear path for sure for me in this sort of small operation in terms of like what I could do next internally. And so I thought I wanted more structure and (laughs) I went to L'Oreal and uh, again, I tried to get in to do whatever I could. So I started as the head of Kara Stas's executive assistant. Uh, She was also an incredible woman this a French woman, uh, incredible presence, a little bit hard to please. And, um, I, she really liked me. If she, if she was hard to please, I'm curious, why did she like you? I think one thing I'm good at is understanding what people want and what they need intuitively and making sure that, that I can give it to them. So even though she was challenging to please, you still were able to, you know, do the job well, because you kind of understood her, whereas maybe other people didn't. Yep. I think so. I think probably people might've been intimidated by her because she was, you know, incredibly successful at a very young age, a very powerful presence, which can be a a little bit intimidating to a lot of people. I didn't have the same sort of experience with her. Yeah. And so from that, I was able to finally get into the marketing track at L'Oreal, you know, through a very roundabout backdoor kind of way. <laughs> right. So you started as like executive assistant. <laughs> I finally made it. Mm-hmm. All right. And then see so why marketing and, and how'd that go? Especially in a company like L'Oreal, marketing is really the department where you have, you feel like you have ownership of the brand and you touch everything right? You touch sales, you touch R&D, you touch design. I mean, really every part of the business. So I think I always knew I wanted to get into marketing. I just um, didn't have the experience really, or like the, I guess, connections to to somehow 
you know, I hadn't worked worked in it, so I, I hadn't you know had any 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 experience. But I think for sure what I wanted was a really solid kind of business foundation, practical as opposed to you know more theoretical that I had done and studied in university. And so um, that's exactly what I got. I will always say that L'Oreal to me is like the Goldman Sachs of beauty. I, I've heard now it's changed, um, but it, my experience was it was very hard work, also very rewarding, but a lot of long hours and a lot of stress for me. And so I stayed there. I worked my way up. At a certain point, I left L'Oreal and wanted to try something a little smaller. And so, you know, a little bit more, I I felt like I had a really good foundation at that point. And I went over to the dermatological skincare side with a brand called Dr. Dennis Gross Skincare. They have an alpha beta peel that is legitimately, it's like a cult product and it's the best at home peel for your skin. I will live and die by that any day of the week. If there's nothing better out there, it's like the OG. And so, and it's great because it was started by a dermatologist in, um, in New York city, Dr. Dennis Gross, uh, and his wife, Carrie Gross. And it was this kind of not family. I mean, it was a family business, but it was a, a sm- much smaller than what I had been used to at L'Oreal, although they do an incredible business and really a chance to to be super involved, um, in everything, you know, meeting with the CEO daily and, and, and not, not as much bureaucracy and time to affect change and really like being able to pivot and make decisions quickly and see those changes come into, into action. So that was a great experience, but something happened to me in New York where I think, you know, I'm a type A personality. I always strive for perfection. Not so much now I've learned to, um, you know, obviously to, 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 to take it in your own business. Yeah, exactly. Well, yes, absolutely. And so, um, I was very stressed and I was unhealthy. I was living in this amazing city. I was very lonely. And, you know, I think now what people recognize as burnout was what I was experiencing. And I got to the point where I thought, okay, this is not what I want. I don't want to be on this path. I don't think it's worth it. My health is not worth it. And I think there's a lot of people who can handle it really well. Um, But for me, I realized that I needed to take myself out of New York City and try something new. And so I don't, I really don't know why, but I decided I wanted to go to Buenos Aires, Argentina, learn Spanish. I mean, that is out of left field. Where did that come from? (laughs) Why? Honestly, it's, it is random. And I, uh, you know, I'll tell you the story and I do believe now a little bit in destiny. Something was pushing me to go. One thing I will say is I, I do always try to follow my gut. And as I've gotten older, it has led me always in the right direction. My intuition. What signs like with this, something was pushing me, what signs or what was, what were those kind of signs or feelings you had that led to this, that you, you kept thinking that you should do this? I think maybe that, you know, it was more that I had all of these trappings in my life that everyone, you know, I remember at family gatherings, it was like, she has this amazing job and she lives in New York city and she's always out doing like at events and, 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 and I'd come home and I was really unhappy and I would kind of push it aside and just like march on and put on my happy face and keep doing all the things that I would, you know, that I always knew to do. So no one really knew. And I think it just got to a point where I thought if you, if I keep going down this path, it's not going to be good. But why Argentina? Like what? 
<laughs> what was the signs that pointed you that way? Okay. So Argentina was really that I wanted to learn Spanish. Always have. My family at the time was living in either Luxembourg or London. Um, so I knew that if I went to Spain, I had a blanket to fall back on, right? Like an hour flight, I could go home. A lot of my friends from high school were still in Europe. And I knew that if I didn't like it, I'd just hop on, you know, an easy jet and um, spend all my weekends at home. So you had never been there before? Never been there before. I didn't know anyone who lived there. Uh, before I made the final decision, I took a trip because I was like, this is a kind of a big life decision. So I went with my mom and we were like, let's check out the city. <laughs> like before I had a very romantic, everyone was like, it's the Paris of South America. And I was like, that's all I need to know. So I went, we spent like five days there. I loved it. I came back. I figured it all out, you know, got out of my lease. It took me probably like a couple months to like get all the the tactical stuff, just in, everything in, in order. But did you set like a date? Like I'm moving on this day. Yes. Because if I didn't, I wouldn't do it. I set a date as soon as I got back. I think it, I think I moved on April the 1st of 2010. I booked a one-month apartment, uh, way overpriced, like only based on scamming tourists in uh, like a fancy apartment building. And I went to um, Buenos Aires and I had this vision of like me drinking a coffee in like a square and having like a love affair with like a tall, dark and handsome polo player and, you know, doing all these like fantastic things that I thought was going to be my life. And um, yeah, I landed in Buenos Aires on like a very rainy, cold, you know, just going into fall, winter day, or winter day, fall day in April. And it was like a rainy city, lots of traffic couldn't like see anything pretty about it. And I got to this, like, what did I just do? I got to this like cold, dark tower, you know, very modern, but like really cold. And I, yeah, I totally had a holy shit moment. Like, what did I just do? I, I messed up this time. Like got intuition. You really, you led me astray. Um, and you know, but it was six months. I was going to, I started um, meeting people like anyone who knew anyone. And this is probably the start of like, I mean, this is what I do all day now, but anyone who knew anyone who had a friend, a cousin, anyone in Argentina, they introduced me. I'd call them. Hi, you don't know, like a moron. Hi, you don't know me, but I'm just like, you know, friend of a friend of a friend, friend of a friend of a friend, <laughs> American girl that doesn't speak any Spanish. Like, would you like to have a coffee? And um, most of them said yes. And I started meeting really cool people. I made two rules while I was there. I wasn't going to speak in English. I wasn't going to meet Americans. Like my goal was to come back fluent in Spanish in six months. That's pretty aggressive. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely shoot for the stars. That's one thing I, <laughs> I will say. Overachiever. No. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh yeah, I try. I try. It doesn't always succeed. But um, And I just started meeting like really interesting people totally outside of my comfort zone, like not comfort zone, but outside of my world that I knew in Argentina, in New York, it was like gallerists and politicians and like, uh, editors of, you know, owners of these like crazy offbeat, um, artsy magazines. And I started, you know, dating all these were not all these, that sounds bad, but, you know, <laughs> living out this, you know, I dated hundreds of men in Argentina, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, everyone, uh, you know, guys who really went against type, right. I was just there. I wanted to push myself and try new stuff and open my mind and meet new people and experience it all, you know? And I found that as soon as I took myself out of New York, there was something that changed about my energy. I was much happier, much healthier. And I think people could sense it. And it was much easier for me to meet people. 
I just all of a sudden started, it was like a big life change for me that impacted me a lot was saying hello to people in the morning, looking at people in the eye, having midday coffees, taking time, like realizing that people live their lives there a little bit differently and priorities might be a little bit different. It's family first. It's long get togethers on the weekends where you don't need a head count. People just show up and you get there at noon and you end up leaving at 4am and the kids are all playing, you know, it's this very relaxed environment that I think was really good for me, like tightly wound type A crazy girl from, from New York. And so, yeah, I was supposed to be there for six months and I met my husband, now husband at month one. We didn't date. We were just friends. I was still on my mission. Um, but yeah, that six months turned to 10 years and three kids. And well, how'd you guys meet? We met through, um, you know, one of the, a friend of mine, parents worked with Martin's uncle. And so they introduced me to Martin's cousin. Martin's cousin invited me to a, a family barbecue and we ended up, you know, meeting, meeting there and becoming really, really good friends. And, um, and that was kind of that. See, this is what I'm t- I knew that was going to happen. Like before you even, cause you were like, <laughs> Oh, my intuition kept telling me to go there. And like, I really believe that. Like if we listen to ourselves and our inner voices, it always guides us to the right place. And we don't realize why until after <laughs> you have to do it. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's so crazy that I met this person that, you know, is from completely different background, but you know, Uh, you know, we met at the bottom of the earth, but he actually ended up growing. He grew up until like age 12 in the tri-state area. You know, I was in New Jersey. He was in Connecticut. Like we knew the same, you know, like songs from the radio and, you know, we had so much in common and our families have so much in common. Although on paper, they have nothing, you know, I'm from like a Jewish immigrant family and he's from an old Catholic Argentine family. And our parents are so similar, so similar. It's scary that you just think some for something had to bring us together because there's no, how did we meet uh, in Argentina? And uh, yeah, it's been almost 10 years. Uh, it's been, I, I was there for 10 years. We've been married for almost 10 years. It'd be, well, it'd be nine years this year. And yeah, that's, that was sort of a big, definitely a big shift. Um, I loved living there. I woke up every day happy. I woke up every day thinking I'm really happy. I love my life. That's what we need to be doing. That had never happened to me. And that was like a real, you know, wake up moment. Like I'm, I was 30 at the time. Like, how have I, how has this never happened? Like how, how I've never felt this before, you know? And I thought, um, I'm not going back. Like physically, I'm not going back. And emotionally, I'm not going back. Like uh, you should be able to enjoy your life and wake up. I mean, of course there's stuff always happens, but for the most part, it was a, it was a brand new world to me. And and I learned so much about what makes me happy and things I'm not willing to compromise on anymore. And, you know, it's a challenge. Now we've been back in the U S for two years and I'm in startup world. So like, you know, obviously it's frenetic and chaotic, but I definitely am approaching it a lot differently this time around um, and encouraging, you know, everyone that works with me to do the same and just prioritizing different things. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. Well, I got to give you some massive kudos for uh, moving to Argentina and taking that <laughs> huge leap because I there's, you know, I think a lot of people might be able to relate to what you're saying right now with being in the hustle and bustle and like maybe having their own internal feelings of needing to go a certain direction with their life. And they're really afraid to make that change. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's not, it's, it's definitely not an easy change. Uh, and I was, you know, fortunate enough to be able to do a huge move like that. But I always tell people like, I think the important part of this equation is yes, listening to your gut, but also just putting yourself in situations. And I've been doing this on the daily, especially like with when I started fundraising, putting yourself in situations that scare the shit out of you, where you are 100% uncomfortable. You know, I sat in rooms with people who I couldn't understand what they were saying for months and just looked like this, you know, like a like I was watching a tennis match. And by the time I would think of something to say, like the conversation had moved way beyond, you know, and it was uncomfortable for me. And I felt like an idiot 70% of the time, but I just kept going and uh, it, it paid off. And so I think, you know, it doesn't have to mean a giant life change. Like, you know, a move to the other side of the earth, but 
putting yourself in situations where you don't have control and um, you're really uncomfortable, I think is important. So when you met your husband, I mean, did you guys, were you like, I'm going to, I'm just going to live in Argentina for the rest of my life with this guy? Like, is that what you're thinking? No, I met him. I moved back to the U.S. like I was supposed to after my six month journey. I was, I moved to Miami. Now that I spoke Spanish, I was going to start a life there. And then I thought, what am I doing? I love my life in Argentina. I'm like trying to make this new thing work in Miami. I don't really have a network or a base or anything there. And so I said, I'm going to go back and try it for good. But I had to go back with a job. And so, you know, I wasn't going to, I spent six months taking Pilates and like doing Spanish lessons every day. You know, that, that has a limited shelf life. And so I went back, I got a job with Co- with Cody, Cody uh, the French, beauty, you know, very similar to L'Oreal. Then they did my paperwork, they did my visa, and I went back to, 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 to manage their um, the marketing department for fragrance. Long story short, I hated it. I thought, what did I just do? Like I ran escaping this and now I'm back. I realized, you know, I did it for a very specific reason just to sort of have a purpose, but I didn't stay long. And I ended up starting a side hustle that turned into a little business, which was um, called Leslie Tesla Designs and I make capes. Capes made out of like capes. I think if you Google it, you can find some on the web somewhere still. Capes made out of wool, um, like like fashion capes. My husband was like, I don't, you like superhero capes? He was yes, so I was really thinking that. Like, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Okay. I was like, I want to make capes. And I was like, that's weird, but I'll support you because I want you to stay in Argentina and be happy. And so this was really my, the first business I had started. We would do pop-ups in Buenos Aires in the in the winter and then moved to New York for the winter. Sorry for the winter in the Northern hemisphere. And things really sort of kicked off organically. I mean, I was doing all of my own press and we were coming out in all these magazines and people were really liking them, but you know, I didn't build that business really thinking of the future and scaling. And it was just a hobby that kind of turned into something that was going to be very difficult to sort of take to the next level just because well, that's a conversation for it, probably a much longer conversation, but you know, so, um, I had that business at the same time I got pregnant with my first daughter. And so I started, I really was popping babies out really quick. I had three kids in under four years. Oh my God. It wow. A, yeah, it was, a. <laughs> you know, we knew we wanted three and it was like, our house was so chaotic and like such a mess that we were like, let's just do it all. You know, let's get it all done. <laughs> oh my God. It was, I don't know. You need a new word for chaos for what, for what our household looked like. But, um, that's what we did. <laughs> that's what we did for better or worse. And so I was consulting with some, some brands in the U S. Um, and then I started consulting with, um, a few beauty startups in Latin America once after I had my, or between my second and my third. So they started sending me to Asia a lot. Um, I was going a lot to Korea and a lot to Japan and trend scouting, and it was incredible. And on one of those trips is sort of where the, the birthplace of Hanny actually happened. And so I was walking down the street in Tokyo and, uh, you know, when I'm traveling, especially on these trips or let, let's be real, any trip, I always try like the weirdest beauty stuff. Like I seek out the weirdest beauty stuff I can find and then try it. Right. There's almost nothing I, <laughs> I won't do. Oh my God. That's hilarious. I'm so I'm so weird about putting just like anything on my face in general. I would be so weirded out. I would like get rashes if I just tried everything. 
Yeah. I'm like, do it all. Try it all. I want it like slather it on. Like I, I, I want to see what's, what's the next big thing, you know? And so I was walking on the street and I saw a very traditional men's barbershop and a very chic woman sitting in the window, having her face shaved with like a straight her blade. face shaved her face with like the foam, the blade, you know, the single sided blade. And I was like, yes, I need that. And so I went in and pointed like a face. Sh- you needed a face shaving or you needed the razor or like just see what was going on. I needed the face shaving. Like I needed to understand why this woman was shaving her face because it was not like the, it's not like the other side of her face had a beard. Right. It wasn't right. So I, I was intrigued. Well, I mean, I actually thought maybe she did. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I could see half of her face with the cream and half of it without. And she didn't, okay. I mean, so I was like, well, I don't understand what this is about, but I need to know. Mm-hmm. And so I went in and I had my face shaved and, you know, I am like pretty light haired. I don't have a lot of hair. Um, I mean, everyone has some peach fuzz and whatever, but I don't really have a lot of hair on my face. Um, but that was my first experience with a single blade. I was absolutely blown away just by like the insane exfoliating properties of this shave really like took off all the dead skin, any peach fuzz that was there. And the product that they put on after onto my face penetrate, you could feel it. It penetrated so much more deeply and it gave me like this instant plump effect. And I was thinking about it, a couple of things, a, you know, of course, like if we're not taking off that dead skin and hair off of our faces, we're, we're putting a lot of product, expensive facial products and makeup, you know, skincare, probably more, more, more importantly onto our faces. That's then not really absorbing past the most superficial layer of our skin. And then I also thought about how like guys do absolutely nothing to their face and look like statues when they're older. And here we are like slaving over buying all this, you know, creams and me trying like every beauty treatment in the book. And like, I still can't compete with my husband who literally like doesn't know what a moisturizer is, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And look like 10 years younger. And you're like, I hate you. For I, hate you. I hate you. I hate you. Um, and so I was thinking, I mean, obviously so much of it has to do with skin composition and they have thicker skin and higher oil content and all of that, but they're also exfoliating daily, right? They are taking a razor to their face and really getting off all of that dead skin daily, multiple times a week. And without really knowing what kind of, you know, that they're giving themselves essentially a facial treatment. And so what I wanted to do, so I said, I came home, I talked to my friend Anne Kohatsu, who is now our head of product. She was a former coworker of mine at L'Oreal. She's Japanese. And I said, hey, I did this really cool thing when I was in Japan thinking I was, you know, a real, a real, you discovered something different. And And she was like, I've been shaving my face since I was 13 years old. My mother shaves her face. My grandmother shaves her face. And I was just like, what? you know, I thought I was a beauty insider. I thought I had like the inside (laughs) scoop and I was just like, thanks (laughs) Thanks a lot for, yeah. And so I was like, okay, we need to do something. I, um, I went to, uh, some amazing industrial designers in New York called prime studios. They designed the razor for Harry's. They are shave experts in every sense of the word, uh, from a technical design standpoint, I wanted to initially make a single blade razor with, um, one head for body and one head for face because you would have the same effect on your body. And what we found that was from like a technical design standpoint, it's just too hard to do both on one. So we decided to launch with, with body. Um, and that brings us to where we are today with our beautiful Henny razor. So the whole thing with this razor is that it's made completely out of metal. 
there's no plastic in this whatsoever. So, you know, the last stat we heard was that 2 billion plastic cartridges end up in landfills in the U.S. each year alone. That was like from over five years ago now. So I'm sure that number has gone up. So, you know, no contribution to landfill waste. When you pick it up and you feel it, you see that it's heavy, right? Like significantly heavier. I am picking it up right now and it is very heavy. And it was, yeah. And you have this little stand thing Mm -hmm. that you put it in and it, it stands up vertically instead of horizontal. Vertically, or you can hold it horizontally in the stand as well. But yes, the, the design was done with the, the vertical sort of as our signature. Which I think is better, to be honest, because when it's horizontal, I'm just thinking of like my, you know, normal razor before I got this is it just takes up a lot of room in the in the shower. But also we don't need water with this. So ex- explain to me how this works, because I it, it's like I take off this rubber thing that's on the top of it. So that's just a cap. To keep it safe. Okay, so let's see. Off. You ha- do you have your blades there? Yes, I do. There's like okay. this cute, tiny little package of yes. blades that have like they're wrapped in really cute little envelopes that are so thin. It doesn't even feel like a blade's in here because I feel like I can bend it. It's it, you know I think the idea of a blade is intimidating to some people when they actually feel it in their hands and you can like literally go like this and it, it, it's it's really not. So you want to open up your razor all the way to the bottom and then grab your blade by the short ends. Right. The, the long ends are the ones that are sharp. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you wouldn't even tell. I mean, this thing is like boing, yeah. boing. Like, look at, uh, yeah, you can Very literally flimsy. just like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And so hold it by the short ends. Well, you don't have oh. to. You can just take it from how you have it now. But okay, um, so the side. And then just yep. drop it in. So it doesn't matter which end because they no. both look sharp. Are they yep. both usable? They, yeah. It's double edged. So you get okay. double the amount of surface area on your body. Oh, open up your blade, your razor a little more. So it's fully open. Now you twist oh, it it's not open enough. It goes enough. all the way open and then you can drop your blade in. Yes. I see. So just like hold it on top and just, no. I'm like, how do I drop this in right now? <laughs> see, you hold it flat. So it's, it's, nope, the other way. Like this yes. way. So it, so the, so you're not holding it like this. You're holding it flat. Oh, and then you just put it in. that you is it in. very different than what I was thinking. Clearly. Yeah, I know. I, a lot of people. It we, nothing yeah. like a regular razor and nothing, nothing about like. this is like that. Nope. I was totally trying to stick it in something. I'm like, where do I put this little edge? Right. So it holds it, but it's not, it's flat. You put it on flat like that. Exactly. Okay. And then you close up the bottom. All righty. And you're ready to go. So the whole thing with this razor, I'll show you how to shave with it, is that obviously it's heavy. And so, you know, when you're shaving with like your plastic razor and you really can go at it like from any angle and it pulls at your skin. And a lot of times, you know, for many reasons, you end up with with that kind of rough shave with irritation, with ingrowns. I have very sensitive, very reactive skin. I always had razor burn and like those bumps on my skin. And so the great thing about this is you don't press or push into your skin at all. You let the weight do the work and you just glide it across. So it's very, very gentle and uh, it gives you such a close shave because at the end of the day, what we found is like, you don't need three blades and four blades and five blades and like gooey strips. You need one sharp blade. Like you'll see the difference. And especially after you use it for a little it is so much closer. And I always play with, you know, talk to people about the fact that a woman has never experienced a proper shave and what a real shave feels like, you know, men go to the barbershop and they do their whole thing and they feel what, a, you know, 
a close shave really feels like. And once you feel it, you're not going to go back. And so the no water thing, it basically, so you can use, so this is our shave pillow. Yes. The shave pillow is very cute. It's a gel. So it's got, it almost looks like a deodorant. It's got the round top. It smells good. It smells, it smells like deodorant, but it smells better. It smells good. But deodorants, like good deodorants. I mean, I have good deodorants. It's all natural. It's very faint. And so I, we don't want this obviously like competing with any fragrance you're going to wear. Um, but it's glycerin based as opposed to most shaving creams and shaving foams, which are soap based. And so what they do is strip moisture away from your skin. And then you also have to rinse them off. So this is glycerin, which is a super, super hydrating ingredient. And what you can do is, so you can use this in your shower, just like you would in place of like any shaving cream, or I'll show you here. Yeah. It's like a lip balm. It feels like lip balm. Yeah. 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 But it's not sticky. You'll see when you put it on. So look, I'm putting it onto my arm just for, uh, so can I just like put this on skin? Can it without shaving? A hundred percent. It's amazing for like as a hydrator in general. So a lot of people are buying like seconds and thirds and they keep them in their purse. And they I use it like that, you know, because I have very dry, especially on my legs. How'd you come up with the name shave pillow? That's such an interesting name. I wanted to convey the idea of, because what you need with a shave is really like a cushion, something that has slip and glide and protects your skin. It has a lot of different notes. Do you smell? Tell me what you're, uh, I'm curious. Oh, like cedar? Like there's some wood smell or something, no? Yeah, there's wood. I almost don't want to tell you what the other notes are because does it, some people say it feels like a really light, like a fire burning, almost like a. Yeah, I don't know if it's like flower or fruit. There's like one other thing I feel like, but I'm bad at this. So you can tell me what's in there. <laughs> I'll guess all day. So they have, yeah, they have, um, it has actually has a top note and it's not, it's not spicy of cinnamon. Oh, nice. Maybe that's that? what it is. Cause it's, yeah, yeah I hesitate to tell people that because it doesn't, it doesn't smell cinnamony. No. Like it's not spicy. It's not Christmassy, but it could be if you wanted it to be. Cause it's now that I told you, right <laughs> yeah, now that totally. I told you, you're just going to smell. I know. Like I, I smell know. Christmas now. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I get it. Um, but the whole idea is that it's really fresh and light, right. Yes. And it's not overpowering. It has like a, yeah, it's not thick minimal. at all. And you get, well, no. you can make it thick. Yeah. You can make it so that it sort of, when you're shaving with it, I like to put it on, you put it on generously and then you can kind of see, I don't know if you can see on my camera, but you can see the white, you know, it's never going to be a foam or like, it doesn't have any surfactants in it. I mean, it's straight up look, it feels like lip balm. Like I think for the audience, I feel like maybe a way to compare it is it feels like it doesn't feel sticky. Well, I don't think there's lip balm that's sticky not like lip gloss, like lip chapstick. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I can totally, I can get behind that. You're like, I hadn't heard it before, but I'm like, yeah. Um, So you put it on and then you just want to use your razor and glide, right? So I'm doing this 100% for effect because I literally have no hair anywhere left on my body after demoing this. (laughs) Because I demo this every day. (laughs) Every day, all day. Um, But the key here is just, again, you obviously can't tell how light I'm going, but I am literally just gliding this across my skin. I'm not pushing at all. It doesn't matter direction, like keep direction the same, right? Yeah. I mean, you can go with or against or both, but I usually here I'm going against. Oh no, I'm going with on my arm just because it's easier for me. Yeah. I mean, it feels like nothing. It feels like nothing, but do you see the hair coming off? Yes. How, how do I, so n- my instinct now is, oh, there's hair on the razor. I need to wipe it off. Now what? Yes. Okay. So what you do, so it's funny when I, when I created the shave pillow, I was really creating it for like my own personal use case, which is I'm always in a rush. 
I always forget. I am in the shower. I thought I shaved and then I get out and there's like a huge strip of like, you know, hair on the back of my leg, or I'm like over the sink with my armpits and like hand soap, try you, right? Like you decide you want to go out last minute. And so right. what we're finding now is that a lot of people love to shave their entire legs out of my COO is one of them. She refuses to shave in the shower or they're like, I live, I wear glasses and it's always been hard for me to see in the shower or like all these cases I had never thought of. We're getting all these reviews, like people writing in saying like Netflix and shave. I only watch like bachelor in paradise. Shave. It's like hysterical to me. You can multitask um, now people. Exactly. <laughs> and so what happens is if you are going to shave a, a significant portion of your body, you do want to have either a little bowl next to you or something that you can sort of rinse every, you know, because remember you just did one stroke. You can get a couple more strokes on that side and then you flip over to the other side. Oh, right. right? Cause you do get double. But again, if you're going to shave both of your legs or a very large part portion of your body, you are going to want to have a little bowl, something there that you can, you know, rinse out. It depends on, I mean, I don't have that much hair and so I can usually get like a full leg without rinsing, but, um, yeah, that's that's the the caveat there, but it comes out really easily. Yeah. Okay, so when you're done, we kind of have to take the blade out, right? Or what do we do with this little tin you have here with the slit on the top of the lid? Okay, so what you need to do is change out your blade every four to six shapes, right? So you finish with this, and you're going to want to open up the cap. You don't do it now. Turn it upside down and hold it. Either put it in a bowl, jiggle it around, just get all of like the hair off. Obviously, clean it off. But you can keep using the same blade for, for most people, four to six shaves is like a week and a half, two weeks. You definitely don't want to like run your fingers around it. You know, it's a precision tool, but yeah, the idea is that once every four to six shaves, you're going to take your blade out and you are going to put it again, always holding it by the short ends into your blade bin Blade and bin. there that it stays so for safekeeping. Um, I have had not this one, another one for, um, almost two years now. I still haven't filled it up. It holds the last count I had, and I need to just figure out what the exact number is, was like, I was at like 150 blades. But why would so, you keep them if they're done though? Wouldn't you just throw them away? Because then you recycle them. Oh. No. So the whole idea is that like, where you, you, you store these safely because this is also metal. You then can recycle the entire thing together where they can, where you recycle metal locally. And so, you know, obviously that's not at the supermarket or a curbside. It actually, some supermarkets you can if they have sharps containers. But the idea is that, um, you know, this will last you a year, two years, depending on how often you shave. So you don't have to, you know, if, if you have to go to the recycling center once every year, once every two years just to get it done. But it's so this so that's will, why it's been, it's like a trash bin for your blades until you're exactly. ready to recycle them but cuter. Very cute. Um, yeah. So it's safekeeping for, you know, used for used blades. Nice. Yeah. So the name Hanny, it's H-A-N-N-I. What, yes. how'd you come up with the name? So we talk a lot in our, you know, a big part of this brand was based on kind of my experience moving to Argentina. And, 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 and as soon as I kind of came back feeling a lot of all of this pressure um, to be like a boss babe and a mom and look like this and like get eight hours of sleep and like all this crap that like, you know, always leaves you feeling less than and sort of like you can't do it. And so we we have created this sort of like no pressure community. We trademarked the phrase no pressure because obviously it has to do with the way you use your razor, um, but really wanted it to. Um, 
create a space where people, we were working with an incredible illustrator um, out of Buenos Aires, or she's based in New York right now, called Pepita Sandwich, to create this Hanny gang that really just opens the conversation, right? And talks about all of these kinds of things when you're feeling like it's not enough. And so the idea of starting this conversation and making, you know, a world where like we feel like we're enough and we don't always feel like we, you know, aren't living up to expectations is kind of, you know, the world I'd like to create for my daughters, the world I'd like my daughters to live in. And um, my youngest daughter's name is Hannah. And so I named it after her. That was a very long winded response to, to, to yes. So I named it after my youngest daughter. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. I noticed on the website, I mean, it's really cool. You guys have with like, who's ready for dolphin skin. And I love the how to Hanny, you know, the verb. (laughs) We're a verb now. I'm like Hanny carefully. And, you know, it's, it's just the way I speak and, you know, it's, it's a thing. We're making it a thing. So you guys recently um, closed a seed round. Congratulations. I'd love to hear how that went. Tell us about We're closing right now, actually. It's, Um, but as we like the final, as we speak, the final paperwork is going through, it's done in a couple of trenches. So, um, yeah. Uh, what that was like. Yeah. So what can you tell us? So basically what happened with us is that we launched in May of this year, right? So we are new. We haven't even hit the nine month mark. My plan was never to raise capital, uh, obviously not this early, but we have a few exciting announcements that I can't talk about yet that are really going to sort of take Hanny to the next level next year, early next year. Um, and with that in mind, we obviously needed to do capital raise. And so we uh, set up to fundraise again. I like many, many things along this, this path, I had no clue what I was talking about. I was like, what's a pre-money valuation? What's a post money? I, I have no clue. Like what's a convertible note? What's a safe? I, I don't know. And I was really intimidated and um, scared to go out and fundraise. And we ran into a lot of challenges because we're a seven month old brand that has done well, but isn't the typical deal that um, some early stage, but like most early stage investors invest post one year or post a million in revenue. And, you know, we haven't gotten, we only have seven months of, of sales data so far. And so it was very challenging for us, even with all of these exciting things that we had upcoming in the new year. Uh, I would say, you know, they're like, yeah, let us know how it goes. Let us know how it goes and come back. Keep us posted. <laughs> We'd love to hear more. We love the product. We right. love you. Yeah. Um, but no. And it was that it was like being punched in the face a million and one times. I think, you know, once we got this big contract that we have for next year, um, there were a few more people willing to give us a chance, but not many, not many. And uh, we actually ended up going with this kind of non-traditional VC. That's actually what I was out in Houston. Um, so our lead investor is a, they're called Valador Partners. They're out of Houston. They're essentially an SPV. So a, a group of um, family offices local to Houston. They don't have a top, they usually don't invest. They could do a lot of stuff on the PE side. Uh, They usually don't get involved this early as most funds don't. But um, I I have built this somehow, this amazing network of incredible women around me. You know, when I came back to the US, I had no network. I've been out of the game for so long. 10 years is like a really long time. I didn't know anyone. And I just started taking phone calls with like everyone everyone who was like, Oh, I know someone who might know someone. And slowly but surely I, I luckily 
you know, was suddenly surrounded by like all these incredible female VCs and founders. And what I will say is that my fundraising experience with female VCs has been incredibly positive. I think, you know, almost every one of them, even if we weren't a fit, introduced me to two to five others. Um, and really kind of like went out of their way to make warm introductions. And, and so one of our uh, angel investors um, introduced me to a fund in Texas that wasn't a fit, but the woman at that fund introduced me to another woman, Barbara um, at Valador, who uh, loved the product and was willing to take a chance on us. And so I am um, super happy to be partnering with them. I just got back. We, we were, uh, I went down for their, their holiday party and to kick things off officially and such an amazing group of um, insanely intelligent people who don't need to show or talk about it, which was a large contrast from a lot of what I experienced in um you know, trying to fundraise with the traditional path, right? No one was talking about how they went to Harvard Business School. I just found out that like the whole team of people who invested in me, they're all Ivy Leaguers. And I'm like, I love the fact that I didn't know this about you until right now. Really smart, down to earth. I left on like a Texas high, to be honest. I was like, I don't really know. I wasn't expecting to like it at all. But all these people are like, you you can't tell. Like, do they have their whole investor base there? And everyone was, you know, coming up, asking questions, super casual, uh, humble, just like there to have fun, really thoughtful questions and asking me, you know, a lot. And I just thought, wow, I, I wouldn't have thought it, but like, yeah, I guess we should be fundraising in, in Houston, I guess. Time to look outside for <laughs> sure. New York, LA, San Francisco. I mean, we have a, investors, an incredible investor who came on in, in, in LA with a small beauty fund there. But I guess the moral of the story is there's there's more. There's more out there. There's a lot of money out there. There's a lot of money out yes. there. And I think if you have a unique product, don't limit yourself because a lot of the traditional VCs um, take a very, you know, they have a, a thesis driven, you know, sort of investing strategy. And if you don't fit into the box, a lot of them aren't, you know, they just can't go out of like their, their boundaries. And I think when you start to look outside of those traditional, you know, sources of funding, you find a lot of really interesting, smart, cool people who might be willing to take a chance on you. What other takeaways do you have? You know, I know that there's a lot of these terminology words that you kind of didn't know about. What were some other things that kind of took you by surprise during the process? I think when I first started, again, I had no clue. I was just researching online. What do you do? How do you make a pitch deck? And, you know, what to talk about. And what I realized as the process went on is that the less formal the approach, in my opinion, the better. Like I stopped sending the deck in advance and I just wanted to have honest, I wanted, first of all, to connect with these people as people and really understand, you know, it's, I know it's a, it's, it's a hard line to walk because you need money, right? You need money to be able to do the things you want to do, but you also want to make sure that you're partnering with people who believe in your vision, people who aren't going to be, I think it's really important at this stage. Like there's only six of us right now, which is a big team for me. We've grown. You don't want to have investors that it's more work managing the investors that, you know, that's really taking you away from like valuable time. So I think finding the the people that you really connect with that get you and what you're trying to build and want to, to let you do that is really important. And I'm really lucky to have found that. But I just relaxed. I think that would be the biggest thing. It's like they're just people. And they're at the end of the day, they're people who are genuinely interested in what you're building 
because that could, you know, be something that works out really well for them. And so when I, when I stopped sort of seeing them as like, it's like intimidating people with like, you know, investment banking backgrounds and all of this stuff, that's clearly like not my forte. Uh, I realized they want to hear about me. Like, I don't have to be nervous. I don't have to walk them through a slide and kind of, you know, I found the approach was much better. Not saying like, look here at the market opportunity. Uh, I cut all that out. And I just started having conversations about the market opportunity because it's, you know, it's interesting and it's what drove me to create this business, but in a much more conversational fluid way. I think when you look online, especially for early entrepreneurs, it's like, there are all these things, follow whoever's guide to a pin. It's a good place to start. You need a place to start. Yikes. Um, yeah. There's probably a lot of bad information out there and old advice. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't know, you know, I think COVID, we, we only, we were born in COVID. We only rate have ever raised during COVID, but it also relaxed things, right? Like I'm talking to VCs, their kids are running in the background. Sometimes my kids are running in the background. That helped me a lot to, to just see them as people people who want to connect with you. And how did COVID affect the fundraising process? Did you meet your investors in person or do you have- For the in- first time this week. Do you have investors that you've never met in person before? Most of them. Yeah, most of them you've done Zoom meetings, basically. Most of them I've never met. And that's incredible. That that's, That is so not a thing that was pre-COVID. Like, I don't think anybody would have written a check to someone they didn't meet in person. Yeah, I hadn't met any of my investors. I just part of the big reason why I just went down to Houston. I wanted to like be there to support and, and meet every meet everyone in person. And I thought, I mean, thank yeah, thank lead investors is different, right? It's like they're they're lead. Yeah. They may or may not have a board seat. They are like writing a bigger check. You want to make sure you're choosing the right person. Yeah, and it totally confirmed everything that you know. I already knew that they were amazing and super supportive and excited about our our our, our deal. But I'm glad I went because it's it, it it I think it you know it it enhances the relationship for sure. You can do so much via Zoom, but at a certain point you gotta put in some face to face. And I think as you know, like you said, with the lead investor especially, I'm so glad I went. Everyone was amazing. I had such a good time. I'm a little tired. <laughs> yeah, but that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we kind of begin to wrap up here, um, just want to know what's what are some of the hardest lessons you've learned while building the business? I know you're super just a couple months in here, but you know whether it's some of the product development or manufacturing hurdles or hiring or fundraising, whatever it is, what were some of the biggest challenges or times where you fell on your face and had to get back up? Okay, so I mean, this is one that happens all the time: is that we're um, you know, it's kind of managing damage control because what we like, so we're putting a lot into um, online marketing now and growing communities and like, boy, the trolls come after us with everything they've got. And, and I used to try, and I still do myself answering every comment, you know, politely and energetically and like trying to get them to understand, like hearing their questions as questions, and after a while, you're just like, there's no pleasing these people. They're always going to, you know, they're hidden in anonymity and they're always going to come. And I, some, it feels like a lot of them get pleasure out of it, you know, because there's nothing you can answer that'll make it right. And so what I've learned is, again, uh, you know, things that I would have taken very much to heart because this is my baby. And if people don't, and I, but usually it's not about the product, it's about photo that we took it's like you know this photo isn't yeah we had one that was like kind of artsy and it was like this girl shaving on on the bed and they're like you know 
as if a, a woman shaves on her bed. Like this is the most unrealistic thing, you know, whatever. It's but always, they don't even know that you're not even needing that water. You can't even, exactly. I'm like, you technically can shave on your bed, yeah. but I've learned just to, you know, I always answer respectfully and um, try to lead with, you know, education and like, maybe they just didn't understand and then let it go because if not, you know, the more you're out there and the more people know your brand, the more they're going to come for it and the more they're going to. Well, I think also the more you try to be different, yes. you're doing something different and people yeah. are going to look at you in this and be like, who do you think you are? And what is this? Right. And imagine that's what every, every innovator faces. Yeah. Well, we have, it's funny. I was just thinking like along these same lines, we have a video. What I love to show people is that I always say it's not just a razor, right? It's like a dermaplaning tool for your body. And you can actually hear, you'll see when you try it, the, like a crackle of your skin that is like the dead skin coming off. And so I thought it would be really cool. There was no like manipulation of sound. It was just a good mic. And um, a couple of friends of mine basically who, um, who shot a video of the girl shaving her legs um, and you can hear it. And oh my God, that sounds like razor burn to me. Like, ooh, that's, you know what I mean? That doesn't sound good. And I'm like, you know what? You just can't please them all. Um, yes, that is you true. think you're trying to do something that, 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 you know, shows people how different and innovative it is. But um, at the end of the day, they're always going to come. Somebody's going to come for you. And if you focus too much on that, then you lose, you lose sight of what's like the important, the important stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, I love your passion and your drive and how unique this product is. I think it's amazing what you're doing. It's so cool. And, um, you know, you're right. You can't please them all. So don't even try. Keep doing exactly. it. Just keep going. And Just keep going. Yeah. That's and it. What, what, um, before we wrap up, what final advice do you have for other entrepreneurs tuning in and what's next for Hanny? I honestly think that's it. It's, you know, so many times I wanted to give up so many times. And, you know, I probably a lot of founders you have on here suffer from imposter syndrome in the worst possible way. I always think, you know, I can't do this. Like I'm not, I'm not smart enough to do this. I don't have enough experience to do this. There's a million reasons why it shouldn't be like, I have everybody fooled. That's what I think all the time, right? Like soon they're going to find out <laughs> and, uh, and it's all going to come crashing down. And I, when I have those moments of self-doubt, I remember my husband always says to me, just put one foot in front of the other and keep going because this is the moment where so many entrepreneurs just bow out. And, uh, if you do that, you'll just be like everyone else who wanted to start a company and never got very far or never ended up launching or whatever the case may be. And so that's what I do now. All hell is breaking loose. Literally every fire is burning at the same time. And I always remember that, like, just keep going, just keep going. Next day. Yep. Next day. There's another day. So let's just end this day. You know, whenever I have yeah, a bad day, exactly. I'm like, I can't wait for this day to be over because tomorrow is a new day. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Um, and as far as what's next for Hanny, we've got big, I wish I could share more with you. We, um, have big plans for next year in terms of, uh, distribution and, you know, we're really taking our, 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 our vision of being, you know, I always say we are not a razor brand. We are a skincare brand that believes that the first step to great skin is a great shave. And so we have a lot of really incredible products coming out next year all around that sort of message of, um, you know, enhancing sort of everyday experiences, enhancing, taking like shaving, for example, what was always a chore, you had to be in the shower, you were shaving because you had a hot day or like for someone else and, you know, shifting the conversation to something that is about self-care 
taking moments for yourself. If you're going to shave, shave for you and shave with a really high quality tool that doesn't leave your skin like in a terrible, you know, painful and irritated and, and really doing that across the board with, with, with other products. So super excited for, for 2022 with Hattie. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you. I had so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.